we do ask, dear God, that you would have your way with us right now, um, that we would allow your word to stand above us. Um, let it confuse us where it confuses us. Let it enrich our thinking. Let it challenge us. Let it comfort us. Let it amaze us. Let it do the work for which you have sent it. Um, may we be open to that. And we do thank you for uh, what it lays before us this morning and in these next couple of weeks as we continue to reflect. Um, so we commit the time to you. I thank you for these friends and ask your blessing on them. In Christ's name, amen. Um, just a uh, an additional comment to follow up last week's class where we were talking about the covenantal framework for um, the final night, both for Jesus sharing the cup of the covenant, as he puts it, at the communion meal, and also him drinking the cup of the covenant as he goes uh, from the garden to the cross. Uh, one that I didn't mention, and I just want to go ahead and slip it in, is at the end of Malachi, uh, those of you who are with me in the first semester, I guess, might recall Malachi as being um, one of the places where not only is a Messiah foreshadowed, but a forerunner of the Messiah is also uh, in view. And that forerunner is identified as an Elijah who is to come, whom Jesus then identifies as being John the Baptist. This is yet another fascinating dimension to the prophetic aspect of the Old Testament scriptures, that it's not just a single individual that's being hinted at. There is this pairing of the forerunner and the messenger or the Lord who would come. Um, Malachi has this. At the end, uh, you have the comment, behold, I am sending you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Um, and and so you've got that that imagery there, and you go back into the beginning of chapter three in Malachi, and it reads this way: Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, who can endure the day of his coming. Um, it's just interesting that the language there is that this one for whom the messenger prepares the way, who is referred to as the Lord, who is coming to his temple, is identified as the messenger of the covenant. Um, it's just one more instance of that kind of understanding and framework being in place for uh, the work that Jesus would do as that messenger of the covenant. But with that much, let's go to the meal itself again, um, where we where we saw Jesus offering the cup of the covenant uh, last week. And I want us to just look at this meal a little bit more, particularly move over to John's gospel. But let's start with Luke. We have very similar accounts in Matthew and Mark, Mark being the shortest, Matthew adding a couple of details. And then in Luke chapter 22, we have the account um, of the meal, Luke 22, beginning with verse 14. Uh, and I encourage you to move around in the text with me today. I don't have a handout because we're moving around a little bit and looking at some more extended passages. But 
um, good to have the text in front of you on this. Um, this is where we have the Passover meal. There is some controversy, particularly because of the way John's, John presents the meal in his gospel and the timing of the meal and just exactly where it was relative to the feast of the Passover and the Sabbath. Um, but, but I think the picture that still emerges is that this is the Passover meal, um, to be uh, taken on, on this, uh, what would be Thursday evening. Um, and so Jesus gathers with his followers, um, to have this meal. And in verse 15 says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Um, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he takes a cup and shares it and then actually gets to the bread in verse 19, breaks it and gives it, do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 20, the cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Um, I, I will pause and just say, I'd encourage you to reflect on the notion of doing this, this act in remembrance and what remembrance might imply. I don't think it's just recalling a historical event. I don't think it's just remembering some information or knowledge of something that happened. I think there's something more profound going on there. Um, Plato had this idea of knowledge as actually being remembering. And, and he had a notion of pre-existence of the soul. And, and so then the process of embodied learning is actually remembering what you in fact already knew in a sort of pre-existent state, something like that. I don't pretend to um, have him nailed down exactly, but it's, it's a, it's a kind of an odd concept, but still the upshot is to, to learn is actually to remember. Um, whatever you make of the Platonic idea, I do think there is something going on here that is more than just remembering. It, it is, um, recovering knowledge that is that takes the form of understanding and realization the apostle paul in his prayers all four prison epistle prayers has only one element in common and it is that people would realize or understand what they in fact believe about jesus it's it's that that fuller realizing appreciating understanding that he's going for and if you have that other things are going to follow. And, and I think this is part of what Jesus is urging. And, and, and if you, in fact, receive this sacrament, you may know this experience I'm talking about where, where it's a kind of an aha experience, a kind of a, oh, yes, yes, I am, I am at this moment engaging the central realities of the entire human story. I am at this moment being grasped grasped by something larger than me, even as I reach out to grasp it. And and you walk away with a with a really renewed vision um, that is that is a kind of a remembering that brings clarity uh, to so much because you've just come right to the very heart of being in in what Jesus is is offering us in himself. So we have that moment um, where uh, Jesus does this. And then after that, um, in verse 21 of Luke 22, Jesus says uh, with grief that there is someone here at the table who will betray me. 
the son of man is going to be betrayed. Um, and they end up with this discussion and all Luke shows is just wondering who it would be. Um, it, it is, it is clear in Luke's account, certainly the way Luke does it, um, that Judas then was present for the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup. In Matthew and Mark, it's not absolutely clear. It, it's not presented differently. It's just not as clear as, as it might be. It sort of leaves the question a little bit. It's interesting, particularly given the way we've been reading Luke as sort of clarifying and adding that in Luke's telling, um, he has Judas present at, at that sacrament uh, as Jesus shares the cup and the bread in that meal. Luke also then includes a discussion among the disciples as to who is the greatest. We will return to that when we look at John. Um, and then there's this wonderfully poignant moment that follows. In verse 28, Jesus says, having said that he is, he is among them as one who serves. Um, verse 28, and you are those who have stood by me in my trials. That's the kind of comment that could easily not have been there. Um, it's the kind of comment that it's easy for us to read through. But I'd let you, I'd encourage you to let that one sink home. Um, this is a band of brothers. They've been through some stuff. It's clear that they've, they, they've come to Jerusalem right now and they, they think they're going to die with Jesus. Um, it, this is a pretty sobering moment. And, and Jesus, who ends up utterly alone, says to them, you guys, you guys mean something to me. You've, you've stood with me in my trials. It means something. And, and it means all the more that they then all took off running when, when it came right down to it. Um, and that he was in fact abandoned. Uh, their relationships were deep and meaningful. They were friends. And then the additional comment is to Simon specifically. Um, verse 31, Simon, Simon, that sort of terms of endearment. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not falter. And you, when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Isn't that wonderful? I, I said to the group this morning, if you've ever wondered whether prayer amounts to anything, and, and if you've ever sort of been mystified by why does anybody pray, I, I'm not sure I've got great answers to these profound questions. My answer is simply to say, Jesus prayed for Peter. I, I love, I love that that's his comment. Peter, it's not going to be a good night for you. And frankly, you're going to be under really intense spiritual attack, but I am praying for you. And, when you recover from this awful night, help your brothers. Um, yeah. And I hope in another week or two to return to Peter's story and, and sort of think about it in a, in a more complete way. Peter, of course, says he's going to stay true. Um, but uh, we know how that will uh, pan out. They then go off to the Mount of Olives and Jesus agonizes in prayer. And then um, 
Judas comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss. This is verses 47 and following. And they take him in uh, for the, the trial. Before we go on to the trial, though, turn over to John chapter 13. And I want to look at John's account of that final night. It's quite lengthy and gives us lots of material that the other Gospels don't even begin to go into. Um, remember the lay of the land for John's gospel. The first four chapters were very preliminary, really. John presents them at least as, as actually all happening before Jesus steps out in his public ministry. John the baptizer is still active all the way through chapter four of John's gospel. And so it's not until John five that you get into Jesus's public ministry. By John six, we're already at the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus's discourse about being the bread of life and the need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Um, we've got to get, you know, through 16 chapters of Matthew to get to that point, for instance. Um, in John's gospel, then we go from there into a sequence of three feasts. Um, first is the tabernacles in the fall, and that's John 7 and 8. Coming out of that is the healing of the blind man and, and in chapter nine. And then as you go into chapter 10, Jesus's comments about being the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And we're told then, um, it's the feast of dedication in the winter. So we're going from tabernacles in seven and eight to the feast of dedication in chapter 10. And then chapter 11 is the story of Lazarus and being raised from the dead. And and we're already getting close to Passover, apparently. At the end of chapter 11, we're told that Jesus slips off into the countryside because of the danger. Um, but, but before very long, he's coming back uh, up to Jerusalem, and it is the time of the Passover. So we're already, by chapter 11 and certainly in chapter 12, we are into that final week. And from there, all the way to the to resurrection in John's gospel, we're in the final week. Almost everything that happens in John's gospel is in Jerusalem. And so you've got a really interesting, different sort of a, a viewpoint uh, from the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I do think of John's gospel as, as a sort of combination of personal reminiscences and theological musings, reflection, probing, learning, instructing. Um, and it's wonderfully rich that way. John does present his storyline typically in a, in a sort of chronological manner, at least it seems to come across that way. But we've already seen in Matthew that even where Matthew seems to be going chronologically, he's not. Um, I think the true, the same is true in John's gospel as well. Um, it, it, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, it's worth though just kind of holding it a little loose as to whether John is giving us things at exactly the, the order they happened or not. Um, I think in, even in that idea of sort of the personal musings and rememberings that, that he, he does sort of run some ideas together. They're pretty central themes. Um, but, but I love that picture of the, uh, you know, the, the elderly 90 year old, uh, you know, who's, who's still very sharp, um, who's thinking back on her life and, and here John thinking back on his and, and recalling with striking clarity, uh, things that happened decades earlier, um, and, and relating in the ways that he does. There are these bits and pieces in John that would be identified as anachronistic, meaning sort of out of order, um, and, and not quite fitting in that particular moment. Um, 
And, and so you just need to be cautious and, and read with some understanding and let John's gospel be the distinct sort of literature uh, that I think it is. In chapter 13, then, we do come to this final night. Um, it is the time of the feast of the Passover. And in verse 2, John locates us during the supper. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, took on a towel, and washed his disciples' feet. Now, it's interesting um, that that doesn't seem to be how the evening started. It happens during supper. Jesus actually rises from the supper to do this. I do wonder whether it fits into Luke's gospel there where Je- where Luke talks about the disciples having a discussion about which one of them is the greatest and Jesus responding by saying, I am among you as, the, as one who serves and I would encourage you to be servants yourself. That's how he completes this foot washing is that he says pretty much that sort of thing to them. So it may be that this is where it slips in, actually well into the meal and into the evening. And for that reason, all the more striking that Jesus gets up from the table and does this. Then you have this moment where he comes to Simon Peter in verse 6. And Peter quite rightly says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You wash mine? That doesn't seem right. Jesus says, Peter, what I'm doing, you probably won't understand right now, but, but you will understand it later. Peter said, no, no, you, I, no way I'm letting you wash my feet. Jesus then says, if I don't wash your feet, you will have no part in me. To which Simon Peter then says, well, okay, then not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Get, 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 do everything. And then Jesus says, Peter, the person who has had a bath only needs to have his feet washed. And then he is clean. And you are clean. Now, John, the gospel writer, goes on to say that Jesus knows that there was one present who was not clean, meaning one who would, in fact, be betraying Jesus. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. But before that phrase, he says that to Peter. You are clean. And he gives a wonderful picture, doesn't he, of of what a relationship with Jesus is like. That, that, that we, we do need that bath. We, we do need that work of Jesus that is the cleansing work. But sadly, we are also the kind of people, even after having had that bath, who tend to get our feet dirty and who need our feet to be washed, who need to be forgiven um, repeatedly for sins, even though we are those who have been cleansed and washed um, through the work of Jesus. It, it is a wonderful picture on the eve of Jesus's death by which he will be accomplishing the very bath that um, Peter has already had. He then says, I've given you an example, uh, for, and you should be doing the same. 
Um, I will say again that while it looks like Judas was there for the celebration of the meal, it also looks like he uh, it certainly was there for the washing of feet that Jesus washed Judas's feet. Um, and, and I point these things out just to say, you know, this this is just remarkable. This is this is the life we are called to. You you love your enemies. Um, in verse twenty one, then we get the agonizing over the betrayal, and John includes this little bit that Peter asked John to ask Jesus, and Jesus indicated to John that in fact it was Judas, and Judas left. It may be that John was the only one in the room who quite understood the implication um, about Judas leaving at that point. The other gospels say the disciples didn't realize what was happening in that moment. Um, uh, and, and actually, John says that same thing here in verse 22. Um, so now Judas is going to verse 31 then. Uh, when he had gone out, Jesus says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. And then he starts talking about how he is leaving. Um, and, and we've got then three chapters plus. Um, this ending of chapter 13, all the 14, 15 and 16, where Jesus talks to his disciples in this poignant moment. Um, and now it is just the 11, it would seem, who, who are faithful um, and who are followers. Um, it's an interesting challenge, I think, to, to, um, to sort of bring shape to, to this discourse. I, I struggle with it, but I, but I do think there are some interesting themes that emerge um, in, in the process. And, and let me just try to point out a couple of them, and, and then maybe we can talk about them and, and the things that you see or questions that it raises. Um, one is that Jesus uh, does tell his followers that they are to love each other. Now, you say that doesn't sound too new. He actually calls it a new commandment. Um, in, in what sense new? I, I'm not sure, but I think it may be that Obviously, the call to love the Lord your God with all your heart has been there for centuries. To love your neighbor as yourself has been there for centuries. It's been part of Jesus's teaching all along. Here, the emphasis really is on you guys sitting in this room right now. I want you to love each other. And there is a urgency to it and a focus to it. And obviously, it doesn't mean to stop loving out into the world. That, that doesn't go away. But there is a particular urgency to this group of followers, to loving each other. Things are going to get tough. You will need each other. My commandment is to you, love one another, and your love for each other will be one of the ways that the world will know that the Father has sent me. So it is in um, verse 34 of chapter 13, then, that we first get this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The call to love shows up in other places as well. In chapter 15, for instance, verse 12, 
This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And that may also have something of the newness of the depth of it, that this is the kind of love we're being called to, is to give your life up for each other. And in verse 17, this is what I command you, that you love one another. So that's one of the themes, and I think there are a couple other places we could find it as well. And then the other themes um, have to do with the really the Trinitarian character of God. And this is where John's theological reflections um, really become quite rich and striking. We've already seen an emphasis on the union of the Father and the Son at several points along the way in John's gospel. And Jesus returns to that theme here um, again. In chapter 14, as we go into 14, you can see it. Um, Jesus says, I um, am going to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. Um, they wonder where, where are you going? Um, in verse 17, um, or in verse seven, I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus says to Thomas and the others, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus says to him, Philip, really, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Um, and then it's that part of the context is that and, and that Jesus is now returning to the Father. Um, this union of Father and Son, I think, also can be seen elsewhere. But what follows immediately and is also developed is not only the union of the Father and the Son, but also then the the gift of the Spirit and the union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, and and that by Jesus returning to the Father, the Spirit would be able to be given to the church, um, to be given to Jesus' followers. In um, verse uh, 26 of chapter 14, for instance, um, uh, Jesus is talking... And he says in verse 25, these things I've spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Um, and sorry, yeah, and then on into chapter 15, um, verse 26 again, when the help helper comes whom I will send to you from the father that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness of me and in chapter 16 verses 7 and following I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you and when he comes and he when he comes will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin because they do not believe in me. Righteousness because I go to the Father. 
and you no longer behold me and judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Um, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear it right now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. Um, it, it's very striking Trinitarian picture here, isn't it? And of the union of father with son, but also the son with the spirit, that the spirit comes sort of, and this is one of the great controversies in the early church, but that the spirit does flow from the father and the son as Jesus presents it here. Um, and, and that the father and the son are at work in and through the work of the spirit. Having laid that out, there is one additional point of union that is striking, and that is the followers of Jesus have a union with Jesus, with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. And so this union of the Trinity is then extended to Jesus's believers who enter into that union and have union with Christ themselves. Um, in chapter 14, to go back and pick this up a bit, in chapter 14, um, verse 20, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Going on down a couple of verses in verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him or in him. It is then in this context that you get this imagery that begins in chapter 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. It's easy for these different images to kind of just get isolated um, and sort of come up out of context. I think it's worth noticing that the context for that imagery of union with Christ is this final meal and this discourse in which our union with Christ grows out of the union of the Trinity and the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So chapter 15, Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit is thrown away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can bear no fruit. Um, and he goes on from there. Uh, implying the closeness that abiding in him creates and the union that we have with Christ as well as with the Father. Um, but I do find it very striking that that picture of union with Christ emerges in this particular context. 
Um, the one last part of this that I think he then uh, points to is his own resurrection. In chapter 16, places where Jesus talks about, you will not see me and then you will see me again. Um, and, and they stood there wondering what that could mean. And he, and he unpacks that a bit more for them until finally it leads in chapter 17 to his prayer, um, where he says to his father, I'm looking forward to coming home, um, and to entering into that glory that we enjoyed prior to the incarnation, a glory that Jesus yielded, um, in, in important ways and into which he will now once again enter. Um, he prays not only for them, but for those who will um, come to faith through them, that that same unity would characterize those of us who follow Christ now. Um, and that that love uh, would be in us. The love, verse 26 of chapter 17, wherewith you loved me, Father, might be in them and I in them. That same union with Christ uh, that he is offering his disciples there. Uh, verse one of chapter 18, then they're heading across the valley, um, and, um, moving from the table. It's, it's not clear just when things are happening. Um, back in the end of chapter 14, there's a comment where he says, let's rise and go. Um, not clear whether they, you know, have a little hard time getting out the door or whether they're walking across, you know, from, um, the place of the, uh, last meal, um, across the valley or just, just what's, what's going on there. But, but it's, it's part of the evening, part of the transit, um, to where he will then be in the garden and Judas will come, uh, along with the others to arrest him. Um, before we pick up from that point, let me just ask, are there, are there specific things you would want to pick up on or talk about, uh, from any of that? There's a lot there. As I said, um, I think a week ago, we are coming up on Holy Week, of course. I don't know what your practices are. Um, Good Friday for me is typically a day of, of Sabbath of, and, and one in which I seek some kind of isolation and quiet for an extended period. Um, whether you do that exactly or not, I, I'd encourage you to find some space for at least a couple of hours where, where you take something like John 11 to 21 and, and read it and, and pause and reflect and, and kind of let it do some work. Um, there's a lot of talk about meditation these days. Um, I'm always glad for mindfulness and the thoughtfulness. Um, but there is always a question of what we're actually meditating on when we meditate. And I would certainly encourage you, um, to think in terms of something like John 11 to 21 as being some great stuff to do that with. Well, the the next thing then is that they, they are in the garden. Jesus agonizes in prayer to, um, to drink this cup. And then uh, the, the, uh, the company come to arrest him and take him. Um, he gives himself up to them. Uh, it is interesting. John's gospel to stay in this account has a couple of striking aspects. 
Um, one is that Peter is identified as the one who pulls the sword out and tries to do something. And Jesus says, no, Peter, that's not it. Verse 11, um, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink? Not only is the imagery of the cup there, but it is specifically a cup that the Father has given him. Um, before that, you have the other striking moment in John's account, which is when they come looking for him, um, and they they say that they're looking for Jesus of Na- the Nazarene. He says, I am. <laughs> and they all fall back, John said. Um, I think certainly the way John is presenting it, it is very much meant to be an identifying of Jesus with the I am God who appears to Moses as well. Um, he is then taken. And the basic sequence that we have is that he's taken first to the high priests and the council of the elders to be tried. And then from there uh, to Pilate um, and um, to be tried again by Pilate because they need the authorization of the um, governing authority if there's going to be an execution uh, and a crucifixion. Um, Both Matthew and Mark give us the picture of going to Caiaphas And I do want us to look at Matthew uh, chapter 26. Toward the end of the chapter, we are in Caiaphas' presence, verse 57. We're off to Caiaphas. The scribes and elders are gathered together. Peter's following. They're trying to obtain witness against him. They're not having much success in verse 60. Then somebody says in verse 61, well, I did hear him say that he was able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And then the high priest stands up and says to Jesus, do you not have anything to say? What is it these people are talking about? And Jesus kept silent until the high priest says to him, I demand by the living God that you tell us, are you the Messiah, the son of God? So it's put to him just straight, and his answer is to quote two passages of the Old Testament. Jesus says, you have said it. Nevertheless, I will tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, this is why when we looked at Psalm 110 last week, I said, keep it in mind, it is not coincidental that Jesus brought it up at that point, at that critical moment, just on the eve of this moment, because that's the psalm he's quoting first. The idea of being seated at the right hand of God is what's in view here, seated at the right hand of power, and the imagery of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven is from Daniel chapter 7. My sense is that there would be no two passages that would be more clearly woven into the messianic tradition at this point than Daniel's prophecies in chapter 7 and Psalm 110. Um, so there's no question what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's not even, he's not just saying, yes, I, I do claim to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He is identifying himself with the messianic uh, texts of the Hebrew Bible that are the texts of these authorities who are questioning him. 
you know, these things get so complicated sometimes in ways that I would just say they don't have to be. You know, are are there other issues involved here? Is Jesus perceived as some kind of revolutionary threat to the Roman authority because he's known as some kind of king and this could cause trouble? Yeah, yeah there are these factors. But make no mistake as to why Jesus was crucified. It was this kind of claim that made it such an issue. In verse 65, it says the high priest is just distressed over this, tears his robe saying, this is blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. This is a serious problem. No one should be claiming to be the Messiah who is not the Messiah. No one should be claiming to be the son of God who is not the son of God. That That is not your garden variety blasphemy. That's serious, serious stuff. The temple authority is going to be very distressed at that kind of thing. No, be quiet. Unless, of course, he actually is the Messiah. That That's the only justification for it. And And this is the tension. What do you think? They say in verse 66. He is deserving of death. And they take him to Pilate to get a warrant of execution. Um, that's the first phase of the trial is before the council of elders with Caiaphas. Luke gives us a very similar picture in his account. Um, but he adds one piece in Luke 22. Um, he has um, Jesus in front of the elders at the end of uh, chapter 21. And then um, in chapter 20, I'm sorry, and then chapter 23, I'm sorry. It was at the end of 22 where where you have that. And then in chapter 23, they take him to Pilate. And this is where the accusation of him being a king um, comes up. They've got to figure out some way to get Caesar to, uh, to get Pilate to act. Because th- there is a problem here. They need the authority of the governing, government to have a warrant of execution, but claiming to be the Messiah is not against Roman law. Okay. So they've got to have some other thing that Pilate can get a hold of to uh, warrant Jesus enough of a threat that he can at least go along with his execution. And so here he's presented as someone who's forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. So Pilate gets into this discussion with him. Are you the king of the Jews? And we have that exchange. Now in verse six, Pilate finds out Jesus is a Galilean and goes, yeah, maybe I can farm this situation off to Herod who happens to be in town at the time. They send him over to Herod. Herod's pretty excited about it because he's heard about Jesus and hopes to get a show. Um, Jesus remains completely silent before Herod. Herod's disappointed, mocks him, sends him back to Pilate. Um, now, this morning in the class, I made the mistake, I think, of wandering off into a discussion of Jesus Christ Superstar and um, um, Alice Cooper uh, playing Herod, John Legend playing Jesus. If, if you haven't seen the production, uh, strangely, uh, I, I encourage you to see it. You know, Jesus Christ Superstar is not where I'm going to get my theology. 
Um, but that particular production, it's the one with John Legend in it, um, is very interesting at many points, including the ending. You've got to watch it through to the ending. There is no resurrection in Jesus Christ Superstar as it's written, but that production does a very interesting thing at the end. Um, and meanwhile, in case you're not familiar with Alice Cooper, who's from my generation, he was about, he's probably about the same age I am. Uh, he, he mentions in one of his interviews that they came out, um, just when his band was kind of hitting stride. And I think it was 1971. I was a freshman in college. Needless to say, a lot of us talked a lot about this. Um, and Alice Cooper was saying he was just on the road too much. So he didn't get a chance to talk, but it's very interesting. He makes comments in interviews about how, well, Jesus had to die because that's how we got, that's how, that's how we get our salvation. I mean, he's, he's very serious about it. Turns out his father and grandfather are both pastors and it's hard to know just where he is in his own thinking right now. Um, but he's Herod and it is one of these really frivolous kind of burlesque kind of moments in the musical. Um, but I gotta say it captures something about Herod, uh, about how shallow and self-absorbed and nervous the guy seems to have been. Um, and so that's the bit you get in Luke. If you want the best account, it's right there in verses 6 to 12 of Luke chapter 23. Then um, he comes back to Pilate, and we have further exchange with Pilate. But for that, let's go over to John again. Um John 18 is where Jesus is taken. John adds that he went first to Annas and then to Caiaphas. Then you get the questioning. Then you get Peter's betrayal. And then you get uh, the movement from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, meaning to uh, Pilate. Pilate says, you know, I really don't want to be involved in this. Is basically his stance. Verse 31 of chapter 18. Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews say, we're not permitted to put anybody to death. And that the words of Jesus might be fulfilled. Because this is all fulfillment of prophecy about Jesus' death. Pilate then says to Jesus, you're the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, are you saying this on your own? Or did other people tell you about me? Pilate says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation, the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? Jesus answers, mm, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate says, so you are a king? Jesus, yes, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate, what is truth? And he goes back out to say to the Jews, I find no guilt in him. How about if I release him like we always do at this time of year? The crowd says, no, 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 no. Release Barabbas. This man needs to be crucified. So Pilate goes ahead, sort of mockingly dresses Jesus up. Um, 
verse 4 of chapter 19, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. Jesus comes out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate says, Behold, the man. The crowd yells, Crucify. Pilate says, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Then they say, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. So their first maneuver to get Pilate's cooperation doesn't quite work. So they ante up a bit and they go ahead and say, look, our concern is this guy's making himself out to be the son of God. Pilate then gets more nervous. And he says in verse nine, uh, where are you from? Jesus gives no answer. You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus says, you'd have no authority over me if it hadn't been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. So Pilate once again makes efforts to release him. And now they work it a little harder. If you release this guy, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. You don't want to be on the wrong side in this. So Pilate hears these words. He brings Jesus out, sits down on the judgment seat. And um, uh, they call the pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And he says to the Jews there, behold, your king, they say, we have no king but Caesar. And he delivers Jesus up to them to be crucified. Putting on the cross the sign, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, there's protest against that. He answers simply, what I have written, I have written. And Jesus is taken away to be crucified. The other three Gospels mention Simon the Cyrene, who is then conscripted to carry the cross for Jesus. John says Jesus goes out bearing his cross. I think the picture you get is that that's how it begins. Um, Jesus is already pretty beaten up at this point. Um, he is bloodied. He is beaten. Um, he is already greatly weakened and after carrying the cross for a while, um, Simon seems to be conscripted to take it the rest of the way. And he's taken out to this garbage dump where they execute criminals on, on crosses. Um, one last uh, thought here before we leave, and, and that is uh, John's gospel does give us um, these couple of lines that are just... Uh, uh, very profound. The question, what is truth, of course, at the end of chapter 18, but also the comment in verse 5 of chapter 19, behold the man, eka homo. Um, I've often thought I'd love to write an essay of um, John's gospel and Nietzsche, Nietzsche's writings and, and put the two in conversation. Um, the, certainly the first chapter um, creates an extraordinary possibility for how to understand the nature of being um, but, but it's also here, Ekahomo, you may know, some of you may know, even if for no other reason than that you hang out with me some, um, that one of Nietzsche's last books is entitled Ekahomo. 
Um, and, and it is also a phrase that he uses in the twilight of the idols. Um, and, and basically what he's saying in the twilight of the idols is, is Nietzsche's, Nietzsche is convinced that, that when we get to the truth of the matter about our situation on this planet, um, and we finally get there in our late modern kind of setting, I guess, we understand that there are no ways that we are meant to be. There is no purpose given to anything on this planet. Um, so there is no, no measure by which we can know whether we are succeeding or failing at being human. Um, what's left is simply that we invent selves, the self itself being a very, um, immaterial substance that lacks substance anymore. Um, my guy Rorty, you know, talks about the subject of the self as a empty space in the web of beliefs. But, but, but what we're left is, is that that empty space in the web of beliefs that we like to think of as a self is simply creating a self. Ironically, paradoxically trying to be an authentic self when it is no longer possible to make any sense of the notion of authenticity because there's nothing to be authentic to. There, there is only a self to create and there is nothing we are meant to be. Um, and, and so, Nietzsche's example, then, of the worst sort of thinking that you can imagine is the journeyman moralist who who draws a picture of himself on the wall, points to it, and says, Eka homo, behold the man. This is what it means to be a human being. Any journeyman moralist, any moralist, Nietzsche says, who who points to a particular understanding of how to be human and says that's what it means to be human is the problem. That That is... That is... Um, that is the moral, the one moral position that, that no one should hold. And so in Nietzsche's view, anyone who says Eka Homo, as if there is some way we are meant to be, um, is, is really to be pushed away and shut down. Um, the phrase, of course, is from John's Gospel. And while the words are in the mouth of Pilate, one of the sort of bad guys, although he's a real tragic figure in this story, um, the, the point is that Jesus is the one being pointed to, and he is being pointed to as the man, the human being. If you want to know what it means to be fully human, there it is. That's your, that's your guy. That's your model. And, and so then at this point, certainly in our story as a civilization, as a planet, um, this is, this I would say is perhaps the single most profound way in Christianity in which Christianity is countercultural. That there is a way we are meant to be and therefore there is meaning in being. Meaning that is embedded in aspects of human experience. Um, because there are ways we are meant to be. And if you want to get the fullest picture, of what it is we are meant to be, you cannot do better than look at Jesus of Nazareth and, and say, Eka homo, there it is. That is, that is what it means to be fully human. And that is what I want to be. The idea then that the work of the Holy Spirit, who is promised by Jesus, would be to, for us to be recreated in the image of the Son of God, you see, becomes such a profound notion. We are being recreated in the image of God, according to Genesis 1 and 2, but in an even more profound, redemptive way in this broken world and in these broken selves, we are now being remade in the image of the Son of God, 
to whom Pilate points and says, behold the man. So just remarkably profound stuff going on here um, and and very rich. Um, I, uh, you know, it occurs to me, I don't know whether any of you saw my, whether you're following our newsletter or whether you saw it back around Christmas, um, I took over for the month of December from Mike uh, to do some Advent meditations. They're all still there on the website if you want to go looking. Um, but the first one was actually uh, about Nietzsche and the Advent. It occurs to me this is where I unpack some of what I'm saying right here. If you want to do it, uh, you can find it. And then after that, I had to promise I was not going to talk about Nietzsche in any more of my Christmas meditations uh, to uh, appease some people who are very dear to me, uh, including my good wife, for instance, who was going, really? At any rate, um, that's the weirdness of Forner. You get uh, Nietzsche one week and you get uh, the angels the next. Uh, but, yeah, got to keep it interesting. Uh, thanks. Anybody wants to stick around and chat for a while, be glad to do that. We can pick up also next week on any kind of questions and thoughts as well. Um, before we go in to the uh, narratives of the death of Christ. Um, that is what we will do next week. So, so you can find those passages they follow from where we've been. Um, and we'll be looking at the uh, four narratives of uh, Jesus's death um, just outside of Jerusalem. Any thoughts, comments, questions? Dr. Horner, where was it that um, it said that Jesus prayed for Peter, that his faith wouldn't fail? Yeah. Was um, that? I think that's John. John? I think so. Um, I thought you said it was in Luke. Uh, was it? Oh, oh, you're right. Yes, thank you. Luke, go uh, Let's see, 22, 21, 22. Uh, Luke 22, verse 31 and 32. Thanks. Um, it just like brought a question to mind of Jesus being the son of God. What, what was he doing when he prayed? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um he's one with the father he's one with the holy spirit when he speaks mm-hmm. you would think he can just with just his word he can accomplish whatever he wants to pray about or or speak about and it just is interesting that he doesn't say what he's praying for peter he says I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So at first I was like, did his, did his prayer not work for Peter? Because Peter denies him. Um, but I think well, ultimately Peter's faith doesn't fail. Right. And so his prayer for Peter is accomplished because his his faith is restored he does come back to his brothers and and he he does do that um but he has this intermission of 
of not a, I don't know, it seems like a failure of faith, but a, a sin, a, he was taken away, but I don't think his faith ultimately was failing. He just, I don't know how to say what was happening with denying him, but I don't think that he actually didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God anymore. Right. So. Right. Right. And I, um, I have no interest in giving you some neatly reductionistic way to make sense of it all. Um, it's also worth noting that while Luke doesn't include this in his telling, if you put Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, it's clear that Jesus has already told Peter he is going to fail. He, he is going to deny Jesus three times. And Peter, of course, says, no, 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 no way I'm going to do that. And I, I think that's here in, um, in John two, but, um, so he's already said Peter is going to stumble, is going to deny him. Um, but that Peter's faith would not fail was Jesus's prayer. And I think the things you just said capture it nicely. There, there is this sad, striking contrast between Judas and Peter. Judas comes with remorse after he does what he's done. And it's, it's Judas's story is heartbreaking. It, and, and all he knows to do is, is kill himself. Peter is utterly broken and, and weeps bitterly. Um, I said I'd get to this later, but, but it's interesting to see the four different gospel accounts of Peter's experience. After Matthew records that Peter has denied Jesus the third time and he hears the rooster, Peter weeps bitterly and goes out. That's the last time Peter's name appears in Matthew's gospel. It, it's a, uh, it's a striking omission. <laughs> in Mark's gospel, it ends with the truncated version of Mark 16, where the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is risen. In Luke's gospel, what you've got is this wonderful moment. Um, uh, um, I think it's Luke 22. Uh, where is it? Yes, Luke 22, verse 61. Luke includes this phrase, uh, this comment, that after Peter denies the third time, Verse 60, and, and a rooster's crowing, even as he finishes what he's saying, Luke says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered, and he went outside and wept bitterly. But I'm, I'll tell you, you know, this theme that I've told you about of the glory of God in the face of Christ, that's one of the specific moments. Um, that was not an I told you so look. Uh, that that was that was a I'm praying for you Peter look and the glory of God is revealed in the face of Christ in a, in a moment where there are no words spoken um, so Luke does that and then as we'll see John at the end of his gospel um, gives a, a much more elaborate restoration of Peter um, in keeping with the three denials the three affirmations um, and the, and the struggle, uh, to, to go, to go forward. Um, but 
the readiness to do it. So Jesus' prayers are answered. And I will say, Lauren, this is one more example to me why the phrase, the faith of Jesus Christ, ought to be translated the faith of Jesus Christ. I think Jesus lived by faith. I, I think his power to, to work miracles was not a power in himself. It was the power of the Father in him. And he exercised that power by faith in the Father. I, I'm not sure of that. And I want to be careful not to overstate it. But there's no question in my mind that Jesus lived by faith. In, in a way that is so far off the charts beyond anything any of us can remotely imagine for ourselves that it's hard to quite grasp that that's what's happening. But it is the faith of Jesus Christ by which our salvation is accomplished. It is the faith of Jesus Christ by which righteousness that is lacking is provided and by which atonement that is needed is provided. So this is one more example of why I say I want to take seriously this idea of the faith of Jesus Christ. And the implication, of course, is to have faith in him. But I don't want to turn that phrase into faith in Jesus Christ. I want it to point where I think it really does, which is Jesus lived by faith and he was faithful. I'm also curious at a later time just to know some of those hints that you're getting about the disciples thinking that when they went to Jerusalem, they were going to die with Jesus. I've never really, I've never known that. I kind of, I thought that they were just under the impression it was him and that he was claiming that that was going to happen for him, but not for them. So I'm curious sort of, yeah, where that's showing up, where you kind of see they're under the impression that, and are fearful and scared that, that really they're all going to die. Um, but yeah. The single most specific reference to it, I would point to is when they go up uh, to Bethany because of the Lazarus, Lazarus's death. It's already dangerous enough that they know Jerusalem is not a good place for them to be. They've been hiding a bit. And so in verse 16 of chapter 11, um, uh, where Jesus says, let us go up. Now to Bethany, Thomas says in verse 16, um, let us also go that we may die with him. That's, that's the clearest statement that I know of. I don't think it's the only hint, but I think that's the obvious clear statement of we're, we're walking, we're walking to our deaths. We are, we are dead men walking here. The, the hostility has gotten to such a pitch, um, that they had already been basically hiding far enough from Jerusalem that the temple authorities could go. If they'll just stay out in the desert, we can probably live with this and survive it. But man, when that guy comes into Jerusalem, we cannot, we cannot let this continue. We've, we've got to do something real about it. Could you also see that? Um, I think I heard this one time in Philip's comment of, or let us should show us the father and that will be enough. Like that they were, that he was afraid of what the, like you were saying, some of the criticism and the, um, growing sort of opposition to the Jesus and the disciples that maybe he was saying, if you just show us the father, either that'll be enough for us and we'll continue or that'll be enough and we won't have to go through whatever we think we're going to go through. I don't know if that, what do you think of that or is that something or is that sort of a different? context 
Uh, interesting. I'd, I'd, I'd be glad to look at it again and see. Um, I've taken it as being um, that, that it's an example of the disciples still really trying to understand what Jesus is saying and um, and trying to understand what it would mean that he and the Father are one. And so even at this point, they're still struggling. And and so I think it's in that I think it's in that context where is it Philip or Thomas or Philip who says, um, well, just show us the father and, and then then that'll be enough that 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 will that will enable us to understand what you're saying. Um, and, and and Jesus is saying, have you been with me this long and you don't realize the relationship yet? Um, so I sort of take it that way. But that's an interesting possibility. It would be enough for us to go all the way with you they also all scatter uh, they all run away in the garden um and and that's an interesting one they fear for their lives um somebody is you know in his bathrobe and it's it's thought to be mark um they grab him and he leaves his bathrobe in their hands and goes running off naked just going ah, i'm getting out of here um i mean there's there's those kind of bizarre moments but but it is they're scared to death, um, and they are in hiding, and and after the resurrection they are in hiding. They've got the doors locked in fear of their lives. 